I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and episode two in our mini series on maritime Sweden. Today, we're heading back in time to one of my favourite periods, the Vikings. We're going to look at the fascinating questions of Vikings looking east, Vikings visiting Arab lands. I think that one of the most inspirational and professionally influential things that I've seen in my work as a historian working abroad are a number of graffiti carvings of what are un- unmistakably Viking ships on the walls of the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. The Hagia Sophia being that magnificent domed building that was built as a Christian church in the Roman period and then became a mosque after the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople in 1453. Those carvings are such a powerful reminder that the Vikings headed east as much as they headed west. To help us understand who these people were, when they went and what they did, and to understand the role of the people from the territory that would become Sweden in that process, I spoke with the fabulous Torre Ske. He's one of Norway's most acclaimed historians. He's written several prize-winning and best-selling works of medieval history. As a historian, he's known for his thrilling style and the way he challenges traditional nation-oriented historical narratives. His latest book, The Wolf Age, The Vikings, the Anglo-Saxons and the Battle for the North Sea Empire, was a bestseller in Norway. It won the prestigious Sverre Steen Award and is the first of Torres' books to be translated into English. Here is a man with a gift for bringing to life, the backstabbing, plotting, bribery and warfare of the period, and for helping you think about the whole Viking era in a new way. I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the fabulous Norwegian Torre talking about Swedish Vikings. Torre, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Thank you for having me. Again, you've beat your back. Your back. We had such a nice chat before about Vikings, didn't we? And what, what was that about? I can't remember. It was your previous book. Yeah, it was. Uh, what was it about? Uh, it was about uh, my previous book was about Vikings in England. So, so it was presumably about that. Yes, I think so. I think so. But today we're going to be talking about uh, Scandinavians heading to the east, which I think is a fascinating topic. Um, I've actually been in 
Venice several times myself and seen um, various relics and artifacts which are believed to be related to uh, Vikings going across across the east and somehow um, the artifacts ending up in Venice. Tell me, when did Vikings start to look to the east? Uh, no one really knows, but very early. Uh, earlier than in the west. Uh, so, so when the first Viking attacks uh, took place uh, in the West, that was was documented, like Lindisfarne, by the end of the eighth century, uh, Viking or Scandinavian exploration in the East had been going on for several generations already. So, uh, and and it was of course very very uh, gradual. Uh, uh, and slow moving, uh, and it started long before the the, the, the so-called Viking Age officially began. Mm. How did they travel there? Is it over land? Are they traveling by boat? Yeah. So, so, uh, so the way that this happened is that people from present-day Sweden uh, started migrating eastward on a very early uh, early age. They crossed the Baltic Sea and and they settled. They formed several settlements uh, on the coast of Finland. And uh, from this area, they launched uh, or they started exploring the river systems of uh, of uh, northern Russia. So by the uh, at least as early as uh, the uh, beginning of the eighth century, they had reached the the area around the, the Lake Ladoga in northern Russia and, and formed a settlement there uh, called Staroya Ladoga today, uh, the, the, the old town of, of the Ladoga. So, so uh, they traveled on the rivers and explored gradually uh, by using small vessels, uh, because these vessels had to be smaller and they had to be able to carry them over, over land, uh, short distances over land. Right. Uh, yeah. So, 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 so they were uh, they were different vessels than the one they used to cross open oceans in the west. Hmm. I wonder how they carried them. Whether they, um, I've done a bit of this, but it was um, I took a small rowing boat from Lake Champlain to Lake George in New York, um, recreating a journey of a uh, in the American Revolution, and the way they carried them was to use. Uh, oars kind of going the oars themselves going across and everyone picked up the oars which was attached to the boat and that was one way of doing it oh, i yeah. suppose they could have put them rolled them on logs do we have any sense of how they managed to portage their own boats i don't think any sources mention this specifically uh there's been uh so so, so we just have to think um logically and uh, and imagine how they did this but i think uh, one way of doing it that's mentioned in in sources from other places is that they they carried logs uh, and they would um, uh, fell trees and make logs and they uh, and they would perhaps uh, use half of the men uh, moving uh, or, or, or or pushing and drawing the ship across the logs and the other half of the crew would run to the back with uh, or from the back to the front with the logs left behind. Uh, and that way they could they could um, haul the ships over land. Yeah, it makes uh, you wonder what was the worst job out of those two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I think generally that that that, that these explorations uh, by these small boats was very very hard work. Yeah. Um, there's been there's been some um, some modern people in people in Sweden that's tried to 
do the same journeys with with modern replicas of of small boats. Uh, of course, this is very experimental because we don't really know how they did it, which is one of the purpose of of, of doing these experiments. And uh, and I think the members of of these uh, expeditions were were quite shocked at how difficult uh, it was. Uh, both physically very demanding, but also it's very hard to plan such a journey because some distances can only be be, be traversed uh, on the spring flow, while right. others perhaps in winter time when they would when they would uh, travel on the ice. Um, and I think I think the, the 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 people that are experts on this believe that uh, that they changed boats. Uh, several times that, that didn't necessarily go with the same vessels from the Baltic Sea uh, and, and to the other side, the Black Sea. They would uh, rebuild uh, or, or build new boats uh, mm. and, and perhaps buy boats or pay pay the local population to to to, to um, build new boats for them. So, uh, but I think I think it's the whole thing is quite mysterious actually how they managed to do this because it's it must have been. Very, very difficult and hard. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? It makes us think about their motivation. I mean, so when you set off on a journey and you discover it to be difficult, it's very easy to turn around. But these guys kept going and overcame whatever difficulties were thrown at them. What do we know about their motivation to leave uh, what was modern day Sweden? Well, I think uh, uh, I think uh, they they uh, were looking to get rich. Uh, in some way or another. So I think the the, the first waves of, of people came looking for fur, because in northern Russia uh, there are lots of small animals with very uh, very good fur that could be very valuable if you sold it to the right people, and, and mm -hmm. you could bring this fur uh, further south. So uh, so perhaps they. Uh, they um, uh, caught the animals themselves by setting traps and, and hunting them, uh, but uh, or, or they could buy fur from, from the local population and bring this with them further south. So I think that, that that's the first economic incentive. But also, of course, slaves. So these were these were people that were probably quite versatile, like just like the Vikings in the West. They could trade and be friendly in one area and they and the same people could plunder and uh, terrorize and and take prisoners and sell them as slaves in in, in the neighbor region so i think uh, it's a mixture of things but they all have in common that 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 these were business people for their for their age so to say hmm. and do we know how far they went along the rivers into what was northern russia Yes, they went very, very far. Uh, they, by by the end of the eighth century, they had opened routes to the two most valuable markets or, or, or important markets in the in the world uh, that was reachable from Scandinavia, and that was the the Byzantine Empire in, in the south. Mm. Uh, that they, they they reached that by by traveling through uh, what is today Ukraine uh, and on the Dnieper River uh, and reaching the Black Sea. And also at the same time, uh, a lot further east, they encounter Arab merchants in the area uh, north of the Black Sea mm. uh, in, in uh, Kasaria uh, and the Turkish uh, tribes living in that area. 
So there are a number of truly fascinating sources uh, dating from these encounters. Uh, I think there are more than 30 uh, different manuscripts uh, describing people that the Arabs knew as the Rus, uh, which also the Byzantine call these people. And they are described as a newly arrived group of, 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 of merchants or, or different groups of merchants from, from a country far away from, from the distant north who, who travels sometimes with women, sometimes only men, and they trade in fur and slaves with Arab merchants. And, and some of them uh, also went to Baghdad. They, uh, they crossed the Caspian Sea. Right. Uh, and and on the south end of the Caspian Sea, they would travel on camelback uh, to to. So this is like a like an adventure film or something. Yeah. Uh, and and they would uh, and they would reach Baghdad on on camelback and, and, and this crossing next... what would be modern Iran today. Maybe you know yeah. Tehran is at the bottom of the Caspian Sea and then across to Baghdad. That's a exactly. some journey. Some journey, yeah. Uh, and of course, we don't know where this journey started. If it was in uh, in modern day Sweden, or if it was, or, or if these people were like nomads living their lives in in uh, the eastern regions of of uh, uh, today's Russia. But um, uh, but but certainly they traveled very very far. This text is uh, it has some very curious details. It tells us that they brought with them slaves that mm. knew the Arabic language and that they uh, they used them as translators to communicate. And it also claims that they uh, pretended to be Christians when they reached Baghdad, even <laughs> though they were not. Right. Uh, and the reason for that was that uh, in Baghdad, Christians uh, were, um, uh, they didn't have to pay as much taxes upon arrival as, as other heathens. So right. these these were uh, rational and uh, shrewd. They were shrewd. Yeah, shrewd business people. They were, but I think most of the uh, of the of the Jewish people they didn't uh, venture themselves all the way to Baghdad. They they uh, uh, met Arab uh, merchants in uh, Kasaria, uh, north of the of the Black Sea, and it's mm -hmm. from that area that we have uh, this. A huge number of Arab texts describing meetings with the Rus people. Mm. And so, is that is that modern day Ukraine or a bit further north in Belarus? Is it around that sort of area? No, no, no. It's it's uh, it's uh, close to the border of uh, of Kazakhstan, actually. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So, so, so it's much further east than that. Wow. Okay. So, That's surprising. So, yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so very, very, very far away from Scandinavia, they they would travel on the Volga River. So the question is if all these people were sort of connected to each other somehow or, or, or if there were very different groups uh, and so on. But, but um, the, the, the Byzantines and, and, and this uh, large number of Arab texts all talk about the Rus. And, and then the Rus must have been what these people were known as in the Slavic uh, areas that they traveled through. Uh, and today we believe that that the name uh, derives from old Norse uh, word for rowers or men who row. Ah, very good. Uh, yeah. So uh, and and fascinating. This is also the name for Sweden 
in, uh, in the old Finnish language, Ruotski. So there's a connection here. Uh, so so, so these, these were the people coming and rowing on the rivers, uh, which was, would, of course, uh, later give the whole region its name. I'm just... You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um, kind of have a vague memory of something. I'm picking this out of the top of my head, but are there not um, illustrations or kind of rock carvings or like very, very basic images of Viking style vessels which have been found um, in Byzantium or, or in the East? That I'm not sure of, but oh. there are, uh, but there are some curious descriptions in, especially Byzantine sources. Uh, of their vessels, you know. Maybe in... it's from there. I, I reckon in the Hagia Sophia or somewhere like that in Istanbul, there are, there is a a couple of crude drawings of yeah. vessels. Yeah, there, there, there are there are there, there are um, uh, Viking mercenaries in, in, in probably uh, or or perhaps merchants uh, in in Constantinople who who, who wrote their names uh, inside the Hagia Sophia and right. um, and. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, on the top of my head, I can't remember if they also drew a ship. Maybe they did. I think they did, and I'm going to try yeah, yeah. and find out about that and um, look into yeah. it. Let's just talk about how Constantinople fitted into this whole kind of geopolitical system of that area. Yeah, so so uh, so we're really talking about two different routes here. One uh, one to the far east, uh, connecting uh, connecting northern Russia and the Scandinavian world to to the Middle East. Uh, but uh, to the west of that, uh, the the road to Byzantium. So this uh, this went through the from the northern parts of today's Russia and through today's Ukraine and down to the Black Sea. Yeah, uh, and and it would cross the Black Sea and arrive in Byzantium. And this was a very uh, lots and lots of Scandinavians traveled to Constantinople. And uh, and they uh, they were merchants, but they were also mercenaries. Uh, and of course, later 
they would form uh, the famous Varangian Guard. Mm, tell us uh, about Varangians is, an, is, is another of, of the names that these people would, would, would acquire in the Slavic lands that they would travel through, meaning something like men who have sworn an oath. Right. Uh, yeah. So, and so what, they so, form their own kind of a bodyguard unit for high ranking people in Constantinople. Yeah, well, uh, one of the things I, uh, th these people would do was that they would work as mercenaries for Slavic princes, probably that had, uh, that, that uh, in the lands that they traveled uh, through, and uh, and also in 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 the West, Vikings would uh, would very often work as mercenaries for 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 kings, and and this is the same thing that they did in in uh, Byzantium. Uh, Byzantium um, at this time was tremendously wealthy and uh, a very very powerful state but its army was not really uh, was nothing like the the, the the ancient army of the Roman Empire uh, from which the Byzantium Empire had grown it was an army of mercenaries to a very large degree so they would they would use their uh, their wealth their silver their money to pay large groups of uh, surrounding peoples to fight for them uh, in, in their army. So they, you would have lots of Turkish and uh, Slavic uh, and other uh, ethnic groups fighting in the Byzantine army. And this was the system that the, that, that the Scandinavian mercenaries joined, so to say. And they was especially one uh, emperor called Basil II who started using uh varingians or, or or scandinavian mercenaries very systematically so, so he would have thousands of them in, in his service and they would travel all around the outskirts of his empire fighting and internal and external enemies mm. uh and uh, uh and so so they would both be used as lifeguards for for the emperor and for for other uh important people and they would be used as elite troops uh, in the army, fighting uh, enemy pe uh, enemies uh, at the borders. Mm. There's one mm. very famous example of one of these guys, isn't there? Harold Hadrada. Tell tell us about it. Yeah, him. it is. It is actually. I'm 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 writing a book about Harold Hadrada uh, mm. right now. So so uh, so it's almost difficult to 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 do that without spending too much time. But um, <laughs> you don't know where to begin. Into, okay, you, you've got, you've got into, into three minutes. minutes. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, yeah, so, so, so I think Harald Harald is, 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 is a, he's of course most famous uh, today uh, as the king who tried to conquer England and, and, and failed at Stamford Bridge yeah. uh, and, and sort of opening England up to, to the Norman invasion from the south. Uh, the Battle of Stamford Bridge taking place just a few weeks before, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, before Hastings. But his life is very, very exciting because uh, because it's really the best example one can find, I think, through the whole medieval period of how connected the world was uh, yeah. at that time. So, so Harald, uh, he um, he was the little brother of the Norwegian king Olaf, uh, later known as Olaf the Saint. And uh, when he was just 15 years old, he had to leave Norway after his brother was killed by the English king, Knut the Great. And um, Harald traveled on a very, very long journey that took him many, many years 
starting in Sweden, and he, he continued along the rivers of present-day Russia and Ukraine. And of course, this was in the early 11th century. And by mm-hmm. that time, the um, lands comprising modern Ukraine and, and Western Russia and parts of Belarus uh, had formed into a political entity uh, by we know them by name, many, many names, but we can call them the the, the, the Rus. Norse Scandinavian sources uh, call call this entity the Gardarike, which means the land of settlements. So so Harald worked for a, uh, for, for a few years uh, as a mercenary for the king of the Rus, Jaroslav uh, the Great. Uh, before continuing southwards across present-day Ukraine uh, and across the, the Black Sea and reaching Constantinople. And there he, he had this fascinating career working for almost a decade as a mercenary, uh, a leader of about 500 soldiers uh, working in different areas in the Byzantine Empire for the Byzantine king, uh, fighting all the way. So uh, with in very, very many different theaters, and uh, he must have seen landscapes in the in very many different places of, of this place. He went to Jerusalem. He went to Macedonia. He went to Italy. He went to wow. probably to, to Northern Africa, and so on. Uh, and then he went home, and he went home as the richest Viking that had ever returned. I think from from abroad bringing with him vast amounts of silver that he had been able to collect through his years in Byzantine service. And using this silver, he he subjugated Norway and uh, parts of Denmark and became a very powerful king in, um, in Scandinavia before he tried to launch this doomed uh, invasion of England. Yeah, and it all went it all went wrong. I mean, it's interesting the, the way all these kind of uh, Baltic areas sort of mix together in this period. Is it fair to say that the distinction between Norse nationalities is, for the most part, a modern invention? Yeah, it, it is uh, mostly a modern invention, of course. But 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 also, I think you can't find in the old sources from from at least the 11th century uh, a distinction between. Uh, people from Sweden and Denmark and Norway. But of course, these were very far from being uh, states or or, or nationalities. And I think much more important uh, uh, was uh, that they were just areas in uh, uh, a larger entity of Norse-speaking people uh, and the the different political groups and, uh, and and the power between these were ever shifting and loyalties were ever shifting. So, so uh, I think we should be very careful in, in, in trying to understand these people uh, by calling them Swedes and Norwegian and, and, and Danes. Yeah. Well, it's all a fascinating story, Tora, and um, I'm going to come back to you and we'll find out more about Harold in the future. Thank you very much for joining yes, us. That's great. Thank you for having me.
Thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please make sure that you leave us a review on whatever app you're listening on, especially if you're listening on iTunes. We'll read out any review that you leave. It's hugely important to help us climb up the rankings and get as many people as possible listening to the podcast. We have a fantastic YouTube channel with some really remarkable videos. Most recently, the animation of a cutaway of a 17th century first-rate man of war explaining everything that is going on inside. And our 3D animation of the Titanic based on the ship's original drawings has now been seen very nearly a million times. So make sure that you check that out. The podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. So please make sure you do everything to see what those guys are up to. And in particular, check out Maritime Innovation in Miniature. It's a brilliant new project from the Lloyd's Register Foundation filming the world's best ship models. The way to find it is to just Google Maritime Innovation in Miniature. And please also join the Society for Nautical Research. You can do that at snr.org.uk. It's a brilliant way not only of finding out all about the maritime past, but of supporting maritime history and all of the excellent things that the SNR gets up to. 